up in church environments uh, where the Spirit was barely talked about. The Holy Spirit sounds like a very foreign, very weird, kind of like, I don't know what that means type of thing. And the Holy Spirit, uh, very much so in church environments like this, was kind of talked about as a thing of like the past. Like there were these things called tongues and prophecy and all these things, but those happened in the early church. They're not for today. And as a result, many people walk away from faith traditions like this, feeling like God is very far away, very distant, and not really a part of our everyday experience. However, on the flip side of that, if you grew up in a Pentecostal background that focused more on the works of the Holy Spirit, uh, you actually may have been a part of a community that felt really manipulative, or maybe unhealthy, or just weird. Like, I will never forget Bryce, the reason why he was invited to church. A friend invited him from his, uh, I think school, right? Yeah. Uh, to his to his church, and the very first Sunday Bryce was there, somebody started speaking in tongues, which you, if you've never heard that, it sounds like a made-up language, really, 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 really loud from the middle of the congregation during worship, and Bryce is like, what cult did I just walk into? Right? And for several of you who grew up in like Pentecostal backgrounds, experiences, that's kind of like the direction or the thing that you felt. Like, my church is this Holy Spirit Pentecostal church that maybe like has these weird prophecies that exist from a stage or a platform by Sister Susie over here, or some crazy made-up language that's getting yelled during worship, or even worse, like a healing service in which I'm meant to feel ashamed for not receiving healing. And that's problematic, right? But for those of you who did not grow up in the church or who do not believe in Jesus, the Spirit has kind of just become whatever you want it to be. In a Pew Research article in 2018, it showed that spiritual but not religious is a particular category that is increasingly on the rise. And so what this means is that people generally desire an experience of the supernatural, but they do so apart from the church. And this is called DIY spirituality or New Age theology, and it's why we've seen a rise in crystals, astrology, solstice worship, moon worship, tarot cards, Ouija boards, Buddhism, and Eastern forms of meditation that focus on clearing the mind instead of filling it with God. And these spiritual experiences are not a substitute for the person of the Holy Spirit. In fact, they always fall short. They're simply a form of numbing, coping, distraction, escapism, and it has led to a belief of God as self, or I am my own queen. <laughs> and although these are generally not done from a sense of um, being like extra crazy or uh, problematic, many of the times they do lead to just that. And I don't have time to go through all of the reasons why, but when your God or your spirit or when your essence becomes you, it leads you down a really, really weird path. And in summary, for many, the Holy Spirit was either not acknowledged, even worse, used as a weapon, or is just reduced to some good vibes, right? And so it comes as no surprise to us that research has actually shown that US, U.S. adults have very little understanding of what the Spirit is. In a 
study done in 2018, a majority of U.S. adults, 59%, said that the Holy Spirit is a force and not a personal being. And this directly contradicts the theology of our Christian faith, or a core tenet of our belief in a triune God. Three, four, three persons, not three forces, in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the question then becomes, who is the person of the Spirit? We doing okay? Okay. And that is the primary question we are going to address today. Who is the person of the Holy Spirit? And to answer that question, we're actually going to look at the Holy Spirit through the story of Scripture in five parts. The first one is creation. The second is the Old Testament. The third is Jesus. The fourth is the early church. And the last one is us. So we're going to go ahead and start with creation. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. Use that app, the QR code. The uh, scriptures will also be on the screen. I warn you now, we're going to be doing a lot of flipping. So if you're like, man, it may be easier to use the app, go for it. Or, excuse me, QR code, go for it. Uh, but Genesis chapter 2, verses 20 through 22 say this. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to that man. This may seem like a strange place to start talking about the Holy Spirit, uh, but if you know a little bit about the Hebrew used here, the word rib is a really interesting word. In fact, here it's the only place where it's translated in the English language as rib. In Hebrew, it's the word known as selah. And this word is used throughout the New Testament over 40 times to reference the wall or the side of the temple or the tabernacle, the place that the Jewish people worshipped. And so what Genesis chapter 2 is telling us here is that both Adam and Eve's physical bodies were temples or tabernacles for the spirit of God to dwell. That the Spirit actually started off dwelling in us in creation. But as many of you know, humanity makes some really poor choices, which separates us from God or from His presence, and our bodies no longer are a tabernacle or a temple for God's presence. So we fast forward, we're moving on to that second part, the Old Testament, and we go to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40. And if you look in your Bibles at Exodus chapter 40, you'll see the title of it is uh, How Moses Built the Tabernacle. So the instructions to build the tabernacle. And this is really interesting. We're seeing here in the Old Testament, the disciples have been led out of Egypt, okay? And what's really, really cool is they're led by a cloud by day and a fire by night. And we read that in the Old Testament, and we're like, oh, great, awesome. But here's what's really cool about that. For the first time in human history, a God was actually willing to walk with his people. Like, God's during this time period were very indifferent towards their creation, 
of esteem for the created. In fact, they were very indifferent, and often the gods of that day enslaved the peoples. And so for a god to say, I am willing to not just walk with you, but then later on in Exodus we see, I am willing to stay and dwell with you, is a crazy idea. God instructs Moses, he says, build me a tent, and later on he says, build me a tabernacle for my physical, visible, cloud presence to dwell. And then we continue to see this as we move on to 1 Kings chapter 8, where we see a temple being built. Do you know anything about your Old Testament history? David really desired, desired to build a permanent temple, not just a tabernacle for God's presence to dwell. He's not able to accomplish it in his lifetime, but his son Solomon does. And Solomon builds this incredible temple, and we read about it all in 1 Kings. And this temple becomes an even more permanent place for the Spirit of God to dwell. And this is a great thing. We see in the Old Testament the temple is affirmed over and over and over and over again as good. But we ultimately see that it is incomplete. It's good because God's presence dwelt there. Like he was in the city with his people. But it was incomplete because there was absolutely no intimacy. When the tabernacle was first built, Moses could not enter it for fear that he would die. When the temple was built, there was only one day a year that the most holy of the Israelites, the priests, the Jewish priests, were able to enter that temple. And it was on the day of Yom Kippur. And when they entered this temple, they would have to tie a rope at the bottom of their foot near their ankles so that if they entered the temple and they died in the presence of God, they could be Tabernacled among us. 
And because Jesus was filled with the presence of God, just as Adam and Eve were in creation, he is able to do things outside of the physical walls of the temple that had never been done before. And we see this over and over and over again in the New Testament. Jesus actually goes around saying, your sins are forgiven, which we hear that and we're like, wow, that's so nice. But to people in this day and age, Jesus would have been violating the Deuteronomic code that had been established for centuries. He would have been making the temple itself an oh, useless. The temple was the place where sins were to be forgiven, and instead Jesus just starts going around and saying, your sins are forgiven. He goes to Nazareth and Nazareth and he recites the Isaiah's prophecy. He says in Luke 4, 14 through 19, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. It lives in me. And this is why the people in Nazareth are ready to throw him off a cliff. Because the spirit had never lived in anything other than the tabernacle or the temple. Jesus says it lives in me. He later said in John chapter 2, verse 19 through 21, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews are really confused because they think he's talking about the physical temple that took 42 plus years to build, excuse me, 46 plus years to build. But Jesus is not referring to the physical temple. He's referring to his body. Saying, my physical body, my Selah, my tabernacle, it's where the Spirit of God dwells. But he doesn't just ask us to take his word for it. He actually begins to demonstrate the very things that the prophet Isaiah says, says exemplify the Spirit of God within a person. He brings good news to the poor. He feeds them. He clothes them. He heals them. He brings freedom to the captive, to the slaves of the society of that day. He restores sight to the blind over and over and over again. And then we get to John chapter 20. And Jesus, at this point, who has died, uh, was buried, and has risen again, goes to visit his disciples. He shows them his hands, his pierced side, his feet, and he says this to him, them in verse 21. Peace be with you. The Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. But if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. We learn that upon a resurrection, Jesus says, The Spirit that I was given, that tabernacled within me, is now given to you. As I have been a living, breathing tabernacle, you are now a living, breathing tabernacle. Then he goes on to say that we have the power to forgive, which may sound really confusing, right? Because if we know our Bible, we know our theology, it's like, wait, God's the only one that forgives, right? And scholars are relatively unanimous. The best interpretation of this is the following. People should experience God's presence and therefore forgiveness by proximity to you because you are God's temple. 
Just as people were to walk into the temple to experience God's forgiveness, as people walk up to your physical body in proximity to you, they should experience the forgiveness of God. The presence of God is in you in actual practice, not in just theory or metaphor. This is why in the book of Acts, we see incredible things happen in the early church as the disciples do the exact same things that Jesus did as he was filled by the Spirit. They heal those that are sick. They pray and are freed as prisoners from captivity. Paul preaches such a long sermon that somebody falls out of a window and he brings him healing. He brings him life. Daily, they feed people over and over, and then we also see that they suffer just as Christ suffered. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, we actually see that a church gathered in a secular city, much like this one, Corinth, is bound by the Spirit itself. Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Here, this word you is actually plural. We don't have a great way of saying that in the English language, except for we do in the Midwest. Holla y'all, okay? So really, this is how the verse should read. Don't y'all know that y'all are God's temple? We are bound together as a community and as a church by the Holy Spirit. Anytime that we are gathered, the Holy Spirit is here. He rests on us as we sang earlier. But it goes even further than that. Part five, us. The gathered church is not only binded by the Holy Spirit, but it is within each of us personally as it was for the disciples. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul says a very similar phrase to chapter 3, but instead of using the plural form of you, he uses the singular. He says, or do you not know singular, that your personal body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Paul is saying, you as an individual, your singular body, you are a temple in which the literal, physical presence of God lives. And for those of you who maybe grew up in a bit more of a legalist tradition, you hear that verse and all of these things come to mind about what you shouldn't be putting on or in your body. Yeah, so uh, this verse is used to say, you shouldn't smoke cigarettes, you shouldn't do drugs, you shouldn't drink alcohol, you shouldn't get tattoos, you shouldn't get piercings, you should eat good, right? That's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying that your physical body houses the presence of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Once again, we see the Spirit of God being tabernacled within us just as it was in creation. The story has now come full circle. So in summary, the Holy Spirit is not simply just a presence or a vibe or an unknowable stranger or a spiritual level to obtain through tricks or works, but rather the Holy Spirit is a person. 
the spirit of God, the cloud of God's presence that used to reside in the tabernacle, now living in us. In creation, the Holy Spirit is seen through Adam and Eve as God affirms their bodies as living temples. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is seen through Moses' tabernacle and Solomon's temple as he comes to live in the heart of the city with God's people. In Jesus, the Holy Spirit is seen through him as he comes to live amongst the people, living, dying, and resurrecting to get rid of every barrier between God and us. In the church, the Holy Spirit is seen through the gathered people of God. The Spirit binds us together every single time we come together, and we know He is here in our midst and in us. The Holy Spirit takes up residence. He dwells within us as our bodies become temples. It is intimate. And it is offered to anyone who seeks and accepts Jesus's grace. We are filled with the Spirit of God just as Jesus was in John chapter 1. Worship team, if you would join me. As we've seen today, God has gone through great lengths, traveling with the people through the Old Testament coming in bodily form to us, living, dying, and being resurrected, all to get close to us as individuals. In the words of Pastor Tyler Staten, God's goal was never to get us into his presence. It was to get his presence into us. We were never meant to get closer to God's presence. We are meant to have God's presence in us. But many of the times, even when we allow God to get close to us, when we make time to feel God's presence, to hear his voice, to be moved deeply, we don't act. We never let it spill out into the world around us. But if we desire to not just know the spirit, but actually practice the person of God that is in us, this requires us to actually do something about it. It's the point of the work of the spirit. And unfortunately, as much as I wouldn't like this to be the case, it generally requires us to get a little outside of our comfort zone. To obey the spirit even when it sounds really, really strange. At a glance, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the way that he spills out into the world around us, feels kind of foreign, kind of strange, kind of weird. 1 Corinthians 12, 7-11 gives us a whole list of ways that the Holy Spirit pours out of us into places around us. It says the Holy Spirit is given to each of us in a special way that is the good for all. To some people, the Spirit gives us a message of wisdom. So wisdom for living in everyday life, to make right decisions. To others, the same Spirit gives messages of knowledge, specific words that somebody in a moment needs to hear. To others, the same Spirit gives faith. Have you ever met that person that has just such extreme faith? It doesn't matter what's going on around them. They just continue to move forward. To others, the Spirit gives gifts of healing to actually pray for someone to be healed and for them to be healed. 
healed. To others, he gives the power to do miracles, whatever those may look like. To others, he gives the ability to prophesy, to say something that has not yet come to pass. To others, he gives them the ability to tell spirits apart, to know what is good versus what is evil. To others, he gives the ability to speak in all kinds of languages that they never knew before. We know this today of speaking in tongues. And still to others, he gives the ability to explain what has been said in those languages, to interpret the tongues. And these gifts are produced one by one in the same spirit. He gives gifts to each person just as he decides. I don't know about you, but to my 21st century years, this sounds really weird. Prophecy, knowing something before it happens, strange languages, words of knowledge, some weird stuff. But could it be that the Holy Spirit desires not just for us to experience Him, but for others around Him to experience the power of His presence in proximity to us? and a tangible way. I would argue that the vast majority of people that right now desire some sort of spiritual experience apart from church are so desirous for the spirit, for the supernatural to be evidenced in the world around them. And unfortunately, one of the greatest tragedies of the church today is that instead of the Holy Spirit being the core of the Christian life, something that is supposed to be practiced, it has become unknown, feared, and divisive, with Bible churches sitting on one side and Holy Spirit churches sitting on another. But here's what we see in the scriptures. We have to have churches that do both. Who intellectually engage with the scriptures and who experience the power of the person of the Holy Spirit in their everyday lives and in the community around them. Not just people who know all the right answers, but who practice the power of God. Remember, Jesus and subsequently the disciples, they did not just preach the Spirit of God in them, they demonstrated what that looked like to the world around them. Jesus actually tells us in John chapter first, excuse me, John chapter 14, verse 2, that we will do works as great or even greater than we have ever seen before. Eugene Peterson actually puts it this way. He says, it is the lived conviction that everything, absolutely everything in the scriptures is livable. The feeding of the 5,000. possible. 
when spiritual gifts, however weird they might be or sound, actually change the world around us. I don't often uh, say this because I feel like it sounds like a grandiose thing, but um, today I do feel like I want to give honor to my heritage. I am really blessed and fortunate to be able to have amassed uh, like hundreds of letters and different works that my uh, great-grandparents actually have written and corresponded. And I found out through reading all of these that I'm probably a ninth or tenth generation pastor, which is crazy because America has not even really been alone for that, that long. So uh, we came over apparently as pastors and state pastors, but my great-grandmother, uh, who lived in Newark, New Jersey, had a mom who was really open to the power of the Holy Spirit. And she taught her daughter and her other two kids about what the power of the Holy Spirit looked like. And so my great-grandmother, at the age of 19, was at Bethel Assembly in Newark, New Jersey. And she was standing at the altar and praying to God. It was a response. And she began speaking in tongues, the language that God had given her. And a man walks up to her and says, excuse me, I'm a missionary from China. I'm home on furlough. And I'm just wondering, how do you know how to speak Chinese? And she looked at him and she's like, I, I don't know how to speak Chinese. Granted, guys, this is like 1920s, okay? Women didn't have that much education. Uh, the world was not globalized like it is today. And she looks at him and she says, I don't know how to speak any Chinese. And he looks at her and he says, we've been speaking it this entire time. We've been standing at this altar. And she knew in that moment that God was actually calling her to be a missionary in China because she spoke in tongues in Chinese. She actually moved all by herself at the age of 24 in 1925 to China, where she actually learned the Chinese language and where she began reaching women and children for Jesus. My great-grandfather, he actually joined her later on after they got married, and they were in Kunming, China, until World War II happened. I've actually heard all these stories about the bomb dropping and them getting out of China. Um, I'll tell you some of them sometime if we have a chance to talk. But they left Kunming, China after World War II. They continued their ministry on through lots of different parts of Asia Pacific. Uh, but today, we actually know that the Chinese underground church is one of the fastest growing churches in the world. In fact, researchers say that by 2030, China will have more Jesus followers than any country that exists. That includes America. And I like to think that my great-grandmother played just a really small part in that. Simply because she was willing to get outside of her comfort zone, to do something that was just a little weird, like saying some gibberish that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to you, that feels strange. But because she was willing to step out, to personally do that in prayer, God used that as a moment for her to reach people for him. And my question to you today is, are you willing to do that? So that his presence 
the world. My prayer today is that God's presence, His Holy Spirit, would not just be a theory or a metaphor to you, but an actual presence that spills out into Kansas City, that transforms the people around us and leads them to a whole life in the Lord that they never experienced before. May we do things as great, if not greater, than Jesus and the early church. Let's pray. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.